If you have your Bible, I'd like you to um, turn in there to Luke chapter 15, to this parable that Travis just read for us. As many of you know, the titles of the parables are later editions. These are not titles that Jesus gave them. So the title of this one, the prodigal son, is not the way that Jesus has titled this parable. Um, And the younger son is actually not the main character in the story. So the first verse, verse 11, reads, A man had two sons. And this man, the father, is the main character in the story. He's the first person named, and he's the last person to speak. And he's the only finished character in the story. The brothers are left for us unfinished. We're left to wonder what they will do next. Who will this younger son become now that he has experienced this incredible love of the father? And who will the older son become? Will he remain Outside, embittered by the Father's love? Or will he come inside and accept it for himself and for others? The Father is the main character. He, by the end of the story, has done everything he can do to restore his family. So the point of the story for us, as we listen to it today, is that we would recognize ourselves in these brothers Perhaps one of them more than the other, but in both of them. That we would see how the Father treats them, and that actually we would become like the Father. You see what Paul, the way he puts this in 2 Corinthians, in the passage Debbie read for us, was that we become ambassadors after we have received the Father's love. And we become people who are to represent the Father's love, extending it to the world on behalf of the Father. So this is the message of the parable overall, that we would become like the Father. Now we're going to walk through the story a little bit at a time this morning. So uh, verse 12 says, the younger of these brothers, these sons, said, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. Now the younger son's request shames his father and his family. It's a certified public statement that he no longer wishes to live within or be identified by his family. (laughs) In requesting what should become available only at his father's death, so in requesting this inheritance now, the son is in effect writing his father's death certificate for him. I want you to be dead. I no longer want to relate to you as your son. Now, the father, he had options available to him in how he could respond. He didn't have to do as the son requested. He could have put his son in his place and refused. Who do you think you are, young buck? Or he could have offered half the inheritance with the other half to come later once the son proved himself responsible with the first half. He could have compromised, met him halfway. But as you read the parable altogether, the father seems to recognize that holding on to his son will never lead to a relationship of love. 
If he tries to hold on to him, it will never lead to a relationship of mutual love. The son is obviously of age, and holding on to him will only lead to a deeper spite and hatred from the son toward the father. The son is, he's already gone in his heart. You see? So the father does something unthinkable. It was literally unthinkable in this world. He writes his own death certificate. He divides his property. Now, there are different words for property or wealth in this world. So the younger son asks for his share using an objective word for financial wealth. To him, we're just talking raw economics here, okay? Just give me, give me a check. We'll part ways. But when the father divides it, the word is different. It's bios. Does anyone want to guess what the word bios means? It's our root for biology. The word means life. So the son, he sees money as just raw economics, but the father... He doesn't simply divide his assets. His skin, his very life, is in what he divides to his son. The son is taking part of his father with him, and he doesn't even know it. He's taking his father's life. Any father could relate to this, that when a son or a child leaves, there's a part of their own soul that seems to go with them. Right? Verse 13, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. These words, a far country, are symbolic as much as they are geographic. Okay? The son is done with everything related to his family. They're stifling rules in religion. Everything about them, he is leaving it all behind. Money, anonymity, distance, all these release his stifled energies. <laughs> He has it made when he leaves his family. Then come the end of verses 13 and 14. There, in this far country, he squandered his property in reckless or wild living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So the son immediately proves that he wasn't worthy of the inheritance. He wastes it, and the older brother will later blame the father for his bad judgment. Now, his situation, though, is compounded by a famine. So his poverty results from a combination of factors. His own recklessness on the one hand, and on the other hand, things that are outside of his control. What is he to do? So then verses 15 and 16, he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Now we know that this is an unthinkable low point for a Jew. To hire yourself out to a Gentile to then go work with pigs. But there's more here than that. You see, the problem with independence, 
The problem with throwing off all the rules and religion that stifle us and throwing off the people that are associated with those rules and religion is that there's no one to help us once we achieve that independence. Sure, he can hire himself out, but this is not a mercy ministry. He still doesn't have enough to eat. He was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. You can say what you will about the restricting legalism in the Old Testament, but Israel had laws like no other people ever had for providing for the poor and the sojourner. We like to think in America and in our modern world that we have achieved a compassion that the world has ever known, never known all on our own. It would never have happened without the people of Israel. Without God instituting his laws to care for the poor within this nation. So people in Israel would leave some of their crop in their fields for the poor to gather for themselves. But in this far country in which the son finds himself, he's removed from the generosity of his people, and no one gives him anything. So what had from a distance looked like a land of opportunity proves to be a much harsher, harsher reality than all the rules and restrictions of the land of his family. Verses 17 and 18. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose, and he came to his father. Now, some people at this point debate whether the son's plan is born out of self-interest or real repentance. I don't think the story's really interested in that. I don't think that's the point. And I say that because of what happens next. While he was still a long way off, in his far country, the words are, the same for the far country. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him, and he felt compassion, and he ran and embraced him and kissed him. You see, the father extends compassion and forgiveness not when he knows of his son's repentance. For all he knows, the son is still in the far country psychologically. <laughs> he does not wait. The father doesn't wait to see how sorry the son is, to test the depths of his apology, to see if it's really real. That's what I would do. But forgiveness from the father is not actually earned by the extent and depth of that son's repentance. Do you see that? Forgiveness is freely and unconditionally given before the son says a word. It's only to be received. The story isn't motivated with, isn't concerned with the motivation of the son. And so you should not be too concerned with your own motivations in coming to God either. You shouldn't fret. You should just come. 
The story is more concerned with the depth of love that the Father is willing to give. His willingness to freely grant forgiveness. Forgiveness is always there to be received. We have only to come. So in verse 21, the son tries to give his uh, rehearsed speech to the father. Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your, called your son. And he might wish to go ahead and finish out his speech. You know, he rehearsed more than this. But the father cuts him off. He tells his servants to quickly bring his best robe, to put it on the son, to put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet, and to begin preparing a feast that will feed the entire village. The sin, forgiven before it was ever confessed, does not need more confession. You see, we don't need a speech. We have only to say, I've, I've sinned and I'm here. And the Father is there showing mercy already. Now, why do you think that the Father goes to such elaborate lengths to welcome his son home? Think, think about it. We just heard that no one would even give him a bite to eat, like what the pigs were eating. But the Father's trying to dress him up. All the son needs is a square meal, and he's putting a robe on him, a ring, and shoes. This, this isn't What's going on? Is this really what the son needs? The father in all of this is seeking not only to make sure that his son is in sound, you know, physical condition. He's trying to cover his son's shame. All the shame from having taken what was his father's and wasted it. All the members of the village who were watching as he comes home and said when he was leaving, he'll never make it. And will scorn him when he comes back. The father's covering all that. He's not simply making sure that he's in sound physical condition. He is reestablishing him as a son and as a beloved. So in verses 23 and 24, the father says, let us celebrate, for this my son was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and he is found. What's happened is that under the father's love and compassion, the younger son has become a new creation. Isn't this what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5? The old is gone, the new has come. The father, the son is being raised from the dead. Well, then we hear about the older son, the older brother. This is verses 25 through 28. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the slaves and he asked what was happening. And the slave replied, your brother has returned, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he got his son back safe and sound. But the older son became angry, and he refused to go in. I want you to notice that even though the older son is at home, he never left, he's still just as separated from his father as the younger son was, and perhaps more so. The younger son and his departure to the far country was separated overtly. It was clear. 
but the older son was separated covertly. (laughs) He was at home, but he was separated from his father's heart the whole time. And the older son's separation is perhaps more dangerous than the younger son's because it isn't obvious. You don't see it as easily. And the lack of joy in the older son's heart makes him suspicious of joy anywhere else. (laughs) He will not go see what the party is about for himself. Instead, he calls a servant to tell him. And when he learns the news that it's about his brother, he becomes entrenched in his anger and he broods over it. The joyless heart finds isolation safer than the risks of participation in others' joy. He won't even join in it. But the father, just as he went out to the younger son, as soon as he saw him from that far distance, he also goes out to his older son. You see, the the father's character is consistent. Both sons he pursues. And he pleads with this older son. The older son replies by staking his right to things based on his obedience, his worthiness compared to the younger son. So he says, this is verses 29 to 30. He answered his father, look, these many years I've worked like a slave for you, and I never disobeyed your commands, yet you never gave me even a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came back, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. I want you to notice here that the celebration that this older son wants doesn't even include his father. (laughs) I wanted a celebration with my friends. It's as if he's bitter that he never took the same liberties as the younger son did. Duty, according to this son, doesn't pay. Then he disowns his brother, referring to him as this son of yours, and he mocks the father's way of dealing with him. He mocks the father's compassion, and he refuses to be identified with his brother, this son of yours. What he doesn't realize is how much his unwillingness to be identified with his brother actually separates him from his father. You see, for this son, for this older son, to be loved has to mean that he's in some way better than somebody else. His dilemma is to accept or reject that his father's love is beyond comparisons. His father's love is not based on comparisons. He has to dare to be loved as his father wants to love him or insist on being loved as he feels he ought to be loved. See, he's going to rise or fall on this. Is he willing to accept the father's love as the father wants to love him or is he going to insist on being loved in the way that he wants to be loved? By being better. You know, the only thing on which the two brothers agree, there's one thing on which they agree, that the younger son is not worthy to be called a son. But the way that they deal with that is everything. 
Now the final verses of our story. Verses 31 and 32. Then the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and everything that belongs to me is yours. It was appropriate to celebrate and be glad, for your brother was dead and he is alive. He was lost and he is found. The father gets the last word. He's let many angry words pass from the older son about the brother. You know that same freedom he showed to the younger son? I'm going to go ahead and give you the inheritance. I'm going to open my hands. He shows that same freedom with the older son. I'm going to let you say these things. But there's one point that he has to put right. The older brother had referred to his brother dismissively, your son. But the father has to set the record straight. This, your brother, was dead, but he's alive again. He was lost, and he is found. You see, the father is always intent on restoring the family. The father's love has actually created a new family, a new way of being a family. They couldn't be a family before because the younger son was, had to go, and then the older son couldn't relate to that younger brother. But the father, by showing mercy and forgiveness, has regained his younger son. And so the older brother, if he's willing, can regain a brother. If he's willing. Now, Jesus, the one telling this story, he's the one who shows us what real sonship is to look like. Because there's a way in which Jesus is the younger son. Jesus goes to a far country, but not to throw away the father's inheritance, but to share it and to bring back all those who have gone off into that far country and just thrown it away. That's what all of us have done. You might relate to the older brother more. I do, honestly. But all of us have been younger brothers too. And all of us have mishandled our father's inheritance. I can't help but think about our, mo our modern world in some ways with the younger brother. Our modern world cannot stand being stifled by the rules of Christianity. If God can't be dead, at least let him be different. Let him approve of me and all the things that I wish him to do. But our world, like the younger brother, will find itself starving and no one to give it anything. So Jesus, he is the younger brother, except he's a faithful younger brother. He goes to share the father's inheritance, to steward it, and to bring back people for the father. But he's also like the older brother. The, Jesus is a, duty, a dutiful son. He's obedient to the father, father, but he's never feeling like his slave. He hears everything the father says, but this doesn't make him his servant. As if he hates doing everything the father wants him to do. There's nothing in it for him. Jesus does everything the father sends him to do, but he remains completely free while he does it and completely full of joy while he does it. 
Jesus gives everything for the Father, and he receives everything all along the way. See, the point of this parable is that we would recognize in it our need for the Father's love. Whether we feel like we've been the dutiful older brother or the younger brother who's thrown away everything. And that we, in becoming a new creation and receiving the Father's love, would then become his ambassadors of his love. Now, every meal, and I'll close with this, with Jesus in the Gospels, is intended to prepare us for the final meal of the Gospels, which is the Eucharistic meal in which Jesus gives us himself. You see, this meal in the story of the prodigal son is to restore the shame that the prodigal had taken on to himself. And it was to bring him back and establish him as a true son of the Father and as the beloved. And this is what the meal of the Eucharist is meant to do for you and me. It's to remind you that you are the beloved. That you are loved. The Father sets a table for you. And in doing so, he covers every bit of shame for the things that you have done. And he places you at his side as his child. He clothes you in a robe. He puts a ring on your hand and shoes on your feet. All things that you don't need 